Our sermon passage comes from the chapters uh, 8 and 9 of Isaiah. If you would uh, turn in your Bible there, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find this in your bulletin. Uh, we've, for our Christmas or Advent season, we've picked out four uh, passages from Isaiah that talk about a king who is going to be born. And each week we're looking at a different reason why Jesus was born to reign, why he was born to reign over your life. And so let me read to you beginning in verse 19. This is God's word. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will no more be gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot will be uh, used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign over David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen? That's a good, that's a good passage to understand not just Christmas, but to understand Jesus in general. Uh, one time, Jesus asked his disciples a very important question. It was a pointed question. And he actually happened to be up in Galilee when he asked it, uh, in the same place that uh, this passage describes in Isaiah 9. He said to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? The emphasis was on you. Uh, because the disciples had been talking about what everybody else said about Jesus. And people were talking about Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the talk of the town at this point. Some people had good things to say, but there were many different things. People were confused. Uh, is Jesus a prophet? Some people thought he was. Is he just a teacher? Is he a miracle worker? Uh, you know, is Jesus Elijah, who's come back from the dead to teach us again? Everybody had all kinds of ideas. On the other hand, people had bad things to say about Jesus. Uh, some people said uh, he's a bad person. He lies. He's Demon-possessed, somebody said. Uh, they even said that he deserved to die. And they were already starting to plot to kill him. But Jesus doesn't care about all that. 
When he looked at his disciples, he said, Who do you say that I am? His boys. The, the, the men that he had selected to be the foundation of the new Israel. The Israel that he was remaking through faith in his name. Who do you say that I am? Remember who answered? Simon Peter. Uh, Simon Peter was one to speak up when nobody else wanted to, even when he probably shouldn't have spoken up. He spoke up. This time he, he said the right thing. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it says, after he said that, Jesus said to Simon, Blessed are you, Simon, because, listen to this, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. I want to tell you this morning, when that happened in Galilee that day, when Jesus asked the question, Peter answered, and Jesus said, God showed that to you, Peter. Isaiah 8 and 9 was coming true, was coming to pass. In the land of Galilee, where before there was just ruin and destruction and sin, suddenly a great light had shone, and Peter saw that light. But it wasn't Peter who invented that light. It wasn't Peter who was smart enough to see it, and everybody else was dumb. It was God who opened up Peter's eyes to see it. And so this morning, I want to tell you, that's exactly the way that you and I also come to see Jesus as the light. Exactly the same way. No different than Simon Peter. In fact, let me put it this way. Here's the message this morning. Cheer up. You cannot deliver yourself. But, cheer up. You can be delivered. That's what we're going to talk about today. You cannot deliver yourself, so cheer up. Some of y'all are trying to deliver yourself this morning. You can't do it. But you can be delivered. A light must shine from on high to do it. If you look at your bulletin, there are three things from Isaiah that I want to talk to you about. First of all, what causes our lives to go dark? He describes it. Secondly, how does the light shine into us? And then lastly, what will we do when we see the light? All right, so first of all, what causes our lives to go dark? Uh, look there at the end of chapter 8, starting in verse 19. You can see it there in your bulletin or in your Bible. Isaiah brings the bad news first. He starts to describe darkness as it had descended onto the nation of Israel. But he gives, critically, he gives the reason why they were facing darkness. Look at verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter or necromancers who chirp, as the ESV says, should not a people inquire of their God? Why would you go to the dead to ask questions on behalf of the living? Something was going on in Israel during this time that <clears throat> at first glance might seem to be something that we don't struggle with, but I want to tell you I think we do. At this time, the people of Israel, to find guidance for their lives, were going to all the same places that the nations around them went for guidance. For them, it was mediums and spiritists and necromancers, people who claimed to speak to the dead, people who claimed to see into or hear from the spirit world. In fact, this is the reason why they whispered and chirped. Uh, for whatever reason, back in, in this time, uh, people thought that the dead spoke in small whispers, uh, even sometimes uh, like birds, in, in bird song. 
And so often the, the people who claim to speak for the dead would do the same thing. They would speak in a bird-like voice, like a, almost like the wind blowing through the trees. Just a faint little whisper and a whistle. And that was supposed to make it seem more mysterious and spooky. So that when people came to see them and to get their fortune read or to, to see what, what the future held for them, they would feel those goosebumps that they wanted to feel. All the nations did that. In fact, there were some people in Israel, apparently, who were doing that. And God says, actually, that's the reason why you're not coming out of the darkness. You're going deeper into the darkness. Because anytime you go, listen to this, anytime you go to anything or anyone besides the living God for the true ultimate guidance in your life, you are walking into darkness and away from light. Solutions to the earth's problems can't be found from earthly sources. Not ultimately, anyway. Not ultimately. And so when we try to go to earthly sources to find solutions to our problems, the darkness just deepens, according to Isaiah. In fact, you can hear his frustration. Uh, look at verse 20. Consult God's instruction, he says. It's like he's yelling at them. Consult the instruction of God. Consult the testimony. Why, why are you going to psychics? Why are you reading your fortunes and your horoscopes when all along, I mean, I'm a prophet, all along God has been sending you prophets like me and people, servants like me to deliver his word to you. And no, this is not as exciting as a guy over there in the dark whispering, muttering, and chirping. However, the difference between that and this is not an excitement difference, it's a true versus false difference. <laughs> What, what uh, Isaiah says is, this is alive, that's dead. Why would you consult what is dead when you could be consulting all the time the living word of the living God? Now, okay, let's think about this. I don't think there are many necromancers in Mulberry. At least I don't know of any who are advertising their services. I'm sure there, there are, right? Um, I, I do think, by the way, it is true that the more people have drifted away from God's word and from really believing that there's a creator, the more open our society has become to some of these very th same things. Um, there are people that will read your fortune. And certainly you can every day read, your, read the stars and read the astrology. And this, this passage is saying those things are dead ends. It might give you a spiritual feeling, uh, spiritual goosebumps, but it does not lead to life. But I, but I don't think that's where our main temptation is. But I do believe that just like Israel was following the pattern of the nations around them to find clarity in their lives, so we, even as professing Christians, follow those around us who don't believe in Jesus in the same strategies for finding clarity for who we should be and what we should do. It might not be necromancers. It might be political leaders today. Uh, it might be news anchors. It might be internet bloggers or Instagram influencers. It could be, it's, it could be anything. What Isaiah is saying is if we are walking past the light that God has lit up by giving us his word, by giving us his son, and we're going to these other sources, we think we're leaving darkness and going to light. But the reality is darkness just gets deeper when we do it. Earth's problems can't be solved by merely earthly solutions. Listen to the words that he uses to describe the results of this. 
Verse 21, distressed and hungry, they roam through the land. These are people that listen to these other voices. When they are famished, they become angry or enraged. They look up and curse their king and their God. And then they look down at the earth and they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And eventually they will be thrust into utter darkness. Are things getting better or are things getting worse here? Unquestionably worse. The solutions they're seeking out are not helping. And I want to tell you, you might think that uh, turning to that other source will give you clarity and help you really feel confident and strong about your ideas. But at the end of the day, if you're not coming to God, you're not coming to light. Isaiah says, if you don't have the light of this dawn, you don't have a light of dawn. That's important, isn't it? I think it's really important. I mean, after all, who, who likes being in the dark? N- not many people. Not many people. In fact, uh, I think if we're honest, most of us are a little bit afraid of the dark. A little bit. Some of us are maybe a lot of bit. Have you ever been camping, for example? And when you're laying in the tent and it's so dark, so different than when you're at home, you hear the, the things rustling in the bushes, and almost never do you think, oh, that must be a cute squirrel. Foraging. You always think, something's coming to eat me. Like, the darkness makes you go to the extremes, doesn't it? Of guessing what's, what's behind it. Uh, sometimes darkness can even cause injury. I mean, have you ever, dads, have you ever stepped on the Lego at night when you're walking through the dark room? It seems, I think dad's foots are like magnets and Legos are metal, right? <laughs> they just always find it. And it hurts. Darkness causes injury. Darkness can even cause depression. Don't you know there's a thing called seasonal uh, mood disorder? Especially in other parts of the country where it's dark most of the time during the winter. People get depressed. People get sad. Darkness isn't good. Nobody likes darkness. Except, it turns out, for spiritual darkness. The Bible actually says that we as human beings, you may not think this about yourself, but this is what Jesus says about you. You love darkness rather than light. I love darkness rather than light. Why in the world do we do that? Jesus says, because our deeds are evil. And if we come to the light of God, then our deeds will be exposed. Here's the the reason why I go to other sources. Those other sources don't make a claim on my life the way God makes a claim on my life. I can read the blogs and not feel the same conviction that I feel when I come to the word of my God. And so sometimes I'll choose the one and not the other. Isaiah is saying, if you keep doing that, the darkness will get deeper and you'll eventually get to a place where you can't find your way out of it. What's the solution? To the law and the testimony, he says. Let's go. It's like he's telling everybody, stand up, let's march straight to God and let's ask him what he thinks. Because that's where light really comes. That's the first thing. How our lives get into the dark. I wonder this morning, are you living in the dark in that sense? Where are you turning for guidance, for confidence, for clarity? Is it, to, is it to God or is it something else? Secondly, how does the light shine into our lives? I love this. Uh, look at the uh, top of uh, chapter 9, especially that first word. Nevertheless, there will be no gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled them in Galilee, in the, in the north, But the day will come when he will exalt them. 
because a great light will shine on them. That word, nevertheless, the whole gospel is in that word. The whole gospel. The word gospel just means good news. The whole good news about Jesus is in that word, nevertheless. Here, here we are, people like us, and we loved darkness rather than light. We would rather have life our way and die than to submit to life's God, life God's way and live. That's how messed up sin has us. And yet, nevertheless, God does not leave us in that mess, but comes towards us with his greater light to shine that light into the darkness. That's why that day when Jesus asked the disciples in Galilee, who do you say I am? It was to show the whole world forever that God's light had finally shined there. That here was a man, Peter, who had seen Jesus. And somehow he recognized that in Jesus, God was lighting up his life and lighting up the world. He was causing something new to happen. Something that would change the, the, the pattern of death and the pattern of darkness. It's amazing. In fact, if you look at verse 2... There are two important things that it says about how light shines into life. It says the people walking in darkness have seen the light. So one way the light shines in your life is that you see it. And you say, okay, well, duh. Of course, you've got to see light to have it shine into your life. Doesn't everybody see the light when it shines? No. Actually, no. Uh, what if, I took, what if you had, someone was blind and you took them outside and said, look, the sun What would they see? Nothing. They, would see, they, would, they wouldn't even see the sun. It's, not, it's as if it's not even there. It's as if the light is not even shining. One of the critical things that has to happen is God has to take our blinders off. He did that for Peter. Which is why uh, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't teach yourself this. No other person taught you this. It's not because you're smarter than the rest of the apostles. It was because God, in his infinite mercy, took the blinders off your eyes and let the light flood into your heart. So you see who I am. But then he says, Isaiah, not only do you got to see the light, the light, in order to be seen, has to dawn. It's got to rise. Verse 2 again. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That word dawn literally means flash. The picture here is like a lightning bolt flashing across the sky. You know how it is at night. It's really dark, but then the lightning happens, and then for like one second, it's like it's daytime again. It can be that bright, lightning. Only here, the light is touching down on earth to stay. It's like when Jesus was born, a lightning bolt shot out of heaven, and the charge maintained all these years. And for 2,000 years now, that same bolt of lightning has been touching down on the earth. So that anybody who has eyes to see can see God loves this world. God loves sinners like us. He has not underpaid for us. He has not paid just fair market value for us. He's overpaid for us by sending his son. And he overpaid so that he wouldn't be outbid. So as to ensure that he could gather his lost children back into his family. Do you see that? Two ways that light shines. First of all, it's got a flash. Second of all, you've got to be able to not be blind and see it. Now, are, are either of those things possible for you to do or me to do for ourselves? No. Is it, did you cause the sun to rise this morning? 
Can you cause lightning to flash across the sky? Did you have anything to do with Christmas? The first Christmas happening? Not a thing. In the same way, Jesus tells Peter, you had nothing to do with your eyes being open to the glory of Jesus either. You were blind. Can a blind person take away their own blindness? Does it not take the touch of Jesus like he did to so many blind people during his life to touch their eyes and to speak the word and the eyes were opened? Say, so what are you driving at here? I'm driving at this. You have, we have got to understand the way that light floods into our lives is when we understand that salvation is by grace alone. Meaning, you contributed nothing to it except your need. And God contributed everything else to meet your need. We call these teachings in the Bible the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. All that means is just teachings about grace that are in the Bible. And two of them are taught here. One is that in order for our lives to be put back together again, in order for our sin to be atoned, God had to send his son. And only he did it. We did not choose that to happen. We did not make that happen. He chose for it to happen and he did it. Another doctrine of grace is God has got to change your heart and my heart if we're going to even be willing to believe Jesus and follow him. Why does this matter? It matters for this reason. When you ask somebody for help, you can be asking for a variety of things. And you've got to be clear on what you're asking for. Let me give you an example. Say this week I walked into some part of our church building and I found that a pipe was leaking. Water was running out on the floor. And I called one of you and said, hey, come help me. And together we're going to fix the pipe. On a scale of 1 to 10, how hard do you think that fix would be based on, or how hard do you think I think it is based on the request I've made? Not that hard because me and you are going to be able to fix it, right? We're going to be able to get together and repair the leaky pipe. But say I come in and I see, wow, it's gushing out and clearly I can't even get to the pipe. I don't even know what's going on here. So I pick up the phone and I call the plumber. And I say, plumber, come out. Fix it. And in that scenario, I'm not helping the plumber. That's why I called him. I'm actually just standing there and the plumber's doing it and at the end I pay him for doing it. Well, imagine a third scenario. Imagine I walk into the room, water's everywhere, and I didn't see it because the light was off, it was dark, and I slipped and fell and hit my head on the ground and I passed out in the puddle of water. And one of y'all came and found me there and called the ambulance to come help. Do you see the difference between those three kinds of help? Can you, if you can see the difference, can you feel in your heart how different asking for help and receiving help would be in each one of those cases? Right? In the first case, it's me and you together. We can do this. We got this. In the second case is I pay you and you do what I say. And if it's not to my liking, then, I, then I'm not going to pay you until I get, you get it to my liking. In the third one, I'm literally passed out stone cold on the ground and can't even ask for help. Somebody had to find me and render to me the help I needed even before I knew to ask for it. Let me tell you, in your life, which one of those three you're thinking is God and you. When you ask God for help every day, you're thinking in one of those three categories. I guarantee you, you might not even be aware of which one it is. But whichever one it is that you're thinking, it's going to affect how you ask. But it's also going to affect how you relate to God in the ask. 
right? If God's just your assistant to swoop into your life and give you a little nudge to do what you could already do in the first place, to carry out a plan you had already thought of, how are you going to relate to God? He's a take-it-or-leave-it take kind of person. I need him when I need him, but then when I don't need him, I don't need him. Take him, leave him. If God's like your plumber that you call and pay, how are you going to treat God? You're going to treat God like, okay, God, I did my part. I paid you. Now you do your part. And if it's not to my liking, I'm getting a refund. But if it's the third one, which is the one Isaiah is saying it is, then what do we do? Oh, God, you could ask me, ask me anything, God, and I'll do it. I'll willingly do anything you ask me to do. Why? Because I want to do what you ask me to do. Why? Because look at what you did for me. I, I was as good as dead, lying on the floor in an ever-increasing puddle of water. And you swooped in and came, and you rescued me. The reason why Isaiah and so many places in the Bible teach us about grace at this level, teach us that we can't create it, we can't contribute to it, all we can do is receive it, is because God wants a relationship with us like that third category. God is not hiring himself out to people. And God is also not your personal assistant. But God is offering to be your Lord and Savior. Amen? It's amazing when you think about it. The light of God shines from on high, flashes. We did nothing to cause it. Do you believe that? And then, even when the light was flashing, I couldn't see it. I couldn't get out of my own way to see it until God came in. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And now you see me. You see who I am. And you're, you're, you're coming to me to embrace me, to receive the gift of life and the gift of salvation. That's the second thing. Thirdly this morning, lastly, what will we do when we see the light? It's amazing. Uh, look at uh, verses 3 through 7. This is in some ways the, the bread and butter of this whole passage. It's the famous Christmas part of the passage. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. But look at how it begins there in verse 3. It tells us not what we should do when we see the light. It tells us what we will do when we see the light. Do you see the difference? Um, my question is not what should we do, as if when you see the light, you have to be commanded to do this or else you won't do it. According to this, when the people see the light that shines in Galilee, when they see Jesus, they will do what it goes on to describe there in verse 3. It'll just happen. It'll be like a natural reaction. Well, what is it? Look, you have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. And so, what do they do? They rejoice before you, God. As people rejoice at the harvest, as the warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder, as it was on the day of Midian's defeat. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. They will rejoice before God. That's the natural reaction of having your heart set free of seeing the light of God shine and flash across the, your life and in your heart. It's not something that has to be forced or commanded or you don't have to have your arm twisted to do it. If you've seen the light, you rejoice. Not only rejoice, you rejoice before God. That word before God is very important. It's in the Bible a lot. And the word literally means face. 
you will rejoice before the face of God. Believers from ancient times have always described themselves that way. We are the people who live before the face of God. His face shines on us. And as this passage says, God watches over us, looks at us because his face is turned towards us. And what he wants to see more than anything is our joy. This morning, do I don't know if you believe that or not. A lot of times we don't believe that. We think, you know, if I'm going to live life for God, it's going to be a pretty dull affair. It's going to be pretty, you know, pretty dull, pretty uninteresting. I've heard it a million times. I can't do that whole Jesus thing because I'm having, I'm having too much fun and I don't want to give up my fun. I think you've got it exactly backwards. What's more fun than living in the face of the one who wants nothing more than his people to be full of joy before his face? Right? It's an amazing thing to know that your creator smiles over your life. He rejoices over you with singing and he wants you to return the favor. He wants you to rejoice under him with singing. Looking up into the glory of his face, shouting for joy at the works that God has done. I'm not saying this morning that Christians don't get sad. I'm not saying we don't cry or mourn. We do all those things. I am saying that in there somewhere, if you've seen the light, there's got to be a joy. Even underneath the sadness, under the tears, beyond the mourning, there's got to be deep reserves of joy. Because why? I've seen the light. God, nevertheless, I was dead, nevertheless. I was blind, nevertheless. I was a sinner, nevertheless. I was headed for hell, nevertheless. How can you not rejoice in that? In fact, he says, uh, you're going to rejoice like people who are harvesting grain and like people who are dividing the plunder after a battle. Think about what those two things have in common, harvest and plunder. It's a special, very specific kind of rejoicing, right? What's the same? Both of those things are about rejoicing in a work that has already been completed. Right? The harvest, done. That's why you're harvesting it. It's done. The work for the year is completed. Plunder, the battle's already over. That's why you're plundering. That's why you're able to bring in all the goods. You've already, the battle's already been won. This is giving us a picture of salvation. I can't cause the light of God's sun to rise over my life, but I sure can bask in it. I sure can get out there and enjoy it. I sure can rejoice in a finished work. And the Bible says that's what Jesus does, a finished work. When he died on the cross, it is finished, he said. That meant all of your sins, all of them, were taken all the way away, never to return on your head again. It means he won, he purchased the right to give the Holy Spirit to you, which he has given to you forever. A finished work, something to, something to get excited about, something to celebrate. That's why also there in verse 4 he mentions uh, it's going to be like the day of Midian's defeat. Now, that story is a great story if you don't know the story of Midian. In the book of Judges, Gideon defeats Midian for Israel. Midian's another country. And he does it in the weirdest way. 
God says, I want you to go out, but you can't go out with too many people. I want you to go out with a small group. And so God whittles his army down to 100 people, only 100 soldiers. And then he says, by the way, I want you to go out with those 100 without any weapons. Don't take a single weapon. Instead, I want you to take a trumpet in one hand and a jar in another. Huh? Right? And these hundred guys go out with a jar and a trumpet looking pretty dumb, right? (laughs) Going out to face Midian. And then God says, blow the trumpet and smash the jar. Huh? But when they did that, what happened? Confusion occurred, and God defeated Midian by his own strength and power through such a crazy thing as that. What's that telling you? It's telling you, why would God do that? Well, he's doing that so that Israel would know forever we did not defeat Midian. God defeated Midian. The plunder that we enjoy now, God earned for us. So much of the Christian life is learning how to rejoice in the finished work of Christ every single day. Let me tell you, as we close, a few ways you can do that. This passage actually is a great guide to it. Uh, Look at verse 6. Each one of the titles of Jesus is really kind of an an interesting way to think about how to rejoice in God's finished work. First of all, Jesus, it says, will be called Wonderful Counselor. How do you rejoice in a Wonderful Counselor? Receiving his counsel, right? <laughs> Not refusing his counsel, welcoming it, being submissive and humble before it. That's how you rejoice in a wonderful counselor. You recognize that all other counsel is less than wonderful. Uh, it's not that they're bad, it's just they're less than wonderful. Jesus' counsel is wonderful. And so you give to his counsel the greater respect and the greater attention than you would give to any other counsel. That's how you rejoice. What about a mighty God? How do you rejoice before a mighty God? Well, by recognizing you're not very strong. Not compared to Him. Not compared to the problems that that you're facing in your life. And so you rejoice in a mighty God by leaning on His everlasting arms. By leaning on His strength. I love it how it says there in verse 6. The government will be on His shoulders. And that's what it looks like to rejoice in a mighty God. You recognize that the burden is on his shoulders, the burden that you could never bear. So often, I try to take onto my own shoulders burdens that my shoulders aren't big enough to carry. Do you do that? Or am I the only one? I do. And, you know, I don't know why I do that other than that I'm very stubborn and independent-minded and self Centered a lot. You can think reasons why you do that. But it's not heroic to pick up a burden you were never meant to bear. It's not heroic. We think it is. There's a difference, by the way, between being a responsible person who works hard, which is a good thing, and trying to be God, which is a bad thing, which is what this is talking about. You rejoice before a mighty God by taking off of your shoulders burdens that are bigger than you, they're God-sized burdens, and rolling them over to the shoulders of Jesus. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Well, what about an everlasting father? 
It says here, Jesus will give us a Father that never goes away, that's everlasting. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always there. What does it look like to rejoice in that? To know that you're not alone. Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. He's with you. He's promised that. He surrounds you. He's not like our earthly dads. He's not like me as an earthly dad who is so imperfect. He's perfect. He's the everlasting Father. I can depend on Him for everything. When I return to Him that respect and and love and, and all the things that we're supposed to feel for fathers, respect, love, loyalty, devotion, when I return that to Him, it's not ever placed on an unworthy recipient. It's perfectly worthy. What about a Prince of Peace? How, how do you reckon you rejoice before a prince of peace? I'll tell you how you don't do it. You cannot rejoice before a prince of peace by making war. Doesn't make sense. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Why? Because God's a peacemaker. Here's, what, here's how it works God has made peace between me and him. Oh, wow, what a miracle! What a miracle. I want to make peace because I love peace. God has bestowed on me the most costly, expensive peace. And so instead of going around my life trying to Zoom people and get back at them and envy them and take from them and all that kind of stuff, one way to rejoice in the Prince of Peace is to go be a peacemaker. Keep short accounts with people. Forgive people where they've wronged you. Apologize where you wronged them. We all do it. But part of what God wants to see is his face is turned towards us as a people who are beginning to pass along the very blessings and gifts that he's given to us through his son. This morning, a great light, y'all, has dawned. It's dawned. It dawned many years ago. It's still touching down on the earth. Do you see it? Do you see it? If you see it, are you rejoicing before it? It's a vital question. Let's pray this morning.